Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the show that brings you all the big news in science. I'm Rowan Hooper, podcast editor. And I'm Kat Delange, I'm head of features at New Scientist. Welcome to the show. This week, we're also joined by New Scientist reporter Graham Lawton. Hello, Graham. Hi. Coming up on the show today, we are exploring the origin story of coronavirus. We're also having coffee at a cafe staffed entirely by robots. And we're hearing about the history of the gender pain gap. And if you don't know what that is, you should. Yeah. And we're also discussing what happened in Libya last year when a drone autonomously attacked humans for the first time. And we're discussing the nightmare month that Big Oil had last month. Uh, But before we start, we have an audio announcement. Yes, big news. For the first time in our 65-year history, we're offering a new way to consume New Scientist content through your ears. From this week, subscribers will be able to listen to stories from New Scientist through the app. Yeah, if you download the app, you'll be able to play professionally voiced and recorded versions of stories from the magazine each week. We're all about audio at the moment, so do check out the app. It's fantastic stuff. Now let's get to it. The origin of the virus has been back in the news these past couple of weeks with lots of scary stories that it was created in a lab. What's going on, Graham? The short answer is unfinished business. I mean, you may recall that the World Health Organization sent a fact-finding mission to China back in January And its conclusion was that the virus was almost certainly natural in origin, evolved in bats, jumped into humans, possibly via an intermediate species. The alternative, that it leaked out of a lab, uh, they described as extremely unlikely. And the sort of animal origin is still the mainstream view, right? Yeah, it is. But there have always been doubters and they now seem to be gaining the upper hand. Uh, The doubts started actually even before... WHO mission when uh, began its work, uh, you know, the complaints that the investigators were not given adequate access and the whole thing was just rigged to absolve China of any blame. Anyway, the lab leak hypothesis was turbocharged last month by a story in the Wall Street Journal that four workers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology fell ill with a COVID-like respiratory disease in November 2019. Now that's a month before the first major outbreak associated with the seafood market in Wuhan, which happens to be just down the road from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, the US State Department made allegations along those lines back in January before the Trump administration left office. They were short on detail, but the Wall Street Journal story put some flesh on those bones. Okay, so that claim is that the virus escaped from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. 
Yeah, and it's definitely a plausible hypothesis. But I mean, I should just be clear at this point that we're talking about cock up, not conspiracy here. You know, the third hypothesis, uh, which is that the virus was deliberately engineered and released as a bioweapon remains completely implausible. Uh, Obviously, we have to stick to the scientific evidence here. Which is what? Well, there are some molecular features of the virus that look quite odd and unnatural, and I won't go into details. You can read about them in the magazine this week, but suffice to say that taken together, they are said to be consistent with the claim that a natural coronavirus was manipulated in a lab to make it better at infecting humans. Uh, These are so-called gain-of-function experiments. They're quite common in virology, and they're done to understand the risks better, but they're controversial for obvious reasons. Now, the claim is that a manipulated coronavirus somehow sneaked through the Wuhan lab's biosafety net and started circulating freely. Okay, so it's, I mean, it sounds like a plausible argument, but I take it not everyone agrees. Oh, definitely not. I mean, lots of evolutionary virologists say that even though the virus looks superficially unnatural, all of its features can in fact be explained by perfectly normal evolutionary processes. Right. So we're at an impasse. Where where do we go from here? Yeah, I mean, at this point, neither side has really put a smoking gun on the table. And there's actually disagreement over what would constitute a smoking gun in the first place. A smoking bat. A smoking bat. I think The Economist described it as a smoking bat, which just, for me, conjured up an image of a bat smoking a cigarette. I don't know about you, but anyway... So I think for the uh, for the natural origin hypothesis, what people want is a closely related virus discovered in a wild bat somewhere in China. It will have to be very closely related. Um, but finding that is a really monumental task. There are obviously billions of bats and thousands of bat caves. Um, the lab leak hypothesis, on the other hand, relies on better access to the Wuhan Institute's medical and scientific records. But, you know, don't hold your breath on that one. I mean, let's not forget that it took the best part of a decade to get to the bottom of the origins of SARS-CoV-1, the original SARS, you know, and that wasn't mired in a web of geopolitical intrigue. So the bottom line is we may never know where this pandemic came from. No, and also we shouldn't let this this hunt for the origin distract from the fact that, you know, the destruction of ecosystems uh, has been what's making crossover of viruses to humans more likely. And that's that remains true. And it's an issue that we have to address if we don't want more crossing over. Absolutely right. I mean, even if this one came from a lab, there's a lot of risk of ones coming from nature. That's the sci-fi alert. As you know, this sounds when there's something in the mag already predicted in science fiction. And I think I know what it's going to be this week. This one is so familiar from science fiction that it, it seems really weird to report it for real. Um, this is the report that robot drones um, that may be working with face recognition software and artificial intelligence autonomously identified and attacked humans. I mean, that's unbelievable. Do you know if anybody was killed in the attack? Uh, we don't know. Um, as you might imagine from a military incident, it's been really hard to get details of this. Um, but our reporter, David Hambling, Uh, saw a a United Nations document suggesting that that this happened, that military drones attacked people in Libya last year. Yeah, I mean, this is really shocking. And we often discuss the ethics around autonomous weapons. But it looks like some groups are just going ahead and and using them anyway. Yeah, well, people discuss the ethics. Other people just go ahead and use them. Um, In this incident, the drones are made by Turkey. They're called Cargo 2 quadcopters. And they look very much like regular drones, you know, like people might have for for you know hobbies uh, there's four rotors and there's a little webcam eye camera but it also this one also carries an explosive charge and the other big difference from civilian drones is that it has uh, this autonomous mode 
that allows it to fly independently and use AI to locate and attack targets. So you could just give it a photo of someone you wanted dead and set it off in the general direction and the thing will just kind of take it from there. Well, yeah, theoretically. um, And in this case, it seems to have been used in the civil war, which ended last year in Libya. Uh, The drones were used by the Libyan government of national accord. And that's since been dissolved against forces of Khalifa Haftar, who was commander of the Libyan National Army. And the UN Security Council's panel of experts on Libya says that the Haftar forces were hunted down by these Kargu 2 drones operating autonomously. And the report says the lethal autonomous weapon systems were programmed to attack targets without requiring data connectivity between the operator and the munition. In other words, the drones were able to seek and attack targets without there being a human in the loop. And and that does appear to be the first time that autonomous drones have found and attacked humans. So there's no way that this can can ever be a good thing, right? <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm laughing, though, because some people do argue that, that drones would be a good thing, that, that autonomous weaponry could somehow um, reduce human casualties. But in most conceivable ways, this is a bad thing. We already know that there are biases and limitations in face recognition. And, you know, you can just imagine the sort of, um, you know, really nasty suppression that this sort of weaponry could lead to. But yeah, I mean, the argument that it could be good in terms of decreased human casualties would be you could just say you just take out one person, the commander of an army, and win a battle and, and save having to kill loads of foot soldiers. There is some sort of international campaign to ban killer robots, isn't there? Well, there is. But this is the thing. Um, While everyone's campaigning to ban them, uh, some people are just using them, (laughs) you know. So, uh, you know, this is the thing. It's uh, everyone's worried about them going off and being used. But um, people are doing it already from what we what we now know. But, But drones are already used anyway in military operations. So why do you need the autonomous bit? Well, AI just make would just make it easier, I guess, um, and and faster. And yeah, and maybe having it more hands free uh, makes it easier ethically for the armies to wage war on other people. But overall, it will uh, apparently make it more efficient is the idea. But the thing is, AI is a long way off from being able to do this accurately and reliably. And I spoke to a one weapons expert on this, and he said that basically claims that AI could increase harm are based on what we know about AI today. And the claims that it could reduce harm are based on things that we hypothesize will be true of AI in some undefined future. And that's assuming, um, you know, like Graham was getting at, that's assuming that people who are deploying the drones actually want to decrease casualties. They might they might not care and they, they might not wait. They're not waiting until the technology is developed enough to be reliable. Yeah, so overall... It's not good to have robots with lethal weapons uh, flying around in control of their own destinies. And and that means the inevitable sci-fi reference is, uh, is the Terminator movies and Skynet and the rise of the machines. Time out. We wanted to tell you about a new podcast we're really into. Yes, The Conversation Weekly is produced by The Conversation's global network. So you know The Conversation has academics from all over the world writing about their latest research. This is them talking about it. It's The Conversation in podcast form and covers a variety of topics, including science, environment and health. Yeah, the one I just heard was all about lab-grown embryos, which was really interesting stuff. 
Yes, it goes into all the details about the new recommendation to relax the 14-day time limit for human embryo research. The Conversation Weekly is all about scholars talking about brand new research and how the world works. Search for The Conversation Weekly or get it wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to theconversation.com slash newscientist to find out more. Okay, let's talk about the massive climate news last week. I heard it called a triple whammy as three of the biggest fossil fuel companies got a climate wake-up call. Yeah, it's also called a tipping point in the history of big oil. So first we had Shell being ordered by a Dutch court to cut its emissions by 45% by 2030. Right, and then two US companies had changes in strategy imposed on them by shareholders and investors. So Chevron have been forced to accept responsibility for reducing the emissions from customers burning its products. And a small hedge fund made ExxonMobil accept two and maybe three pro-environment members on its board. And Exxon have actually just announced the third board member. It's a guy called Alexander Andy Karsner, and he currently works for X, which is Alphabet's moonshot company. And he's got a lot of experience working with energy efficiency and even in climate negotiations. Uh, it's amazing. And the people we spoke to said the implications of this, this whole thing are not being overhyped. Shell are appealing the ruling, um, but until any appeal is heard and decided, the law says they have to cut emissions, well, massively. So they'll have to start pivoting faster than they were planning, pivoting to renewables to do that. And they were doing this restructuring, but this is a profound change to their business. Yeah, and it sets a precedent because other oil and gas companies are not going to be gloating about it. You know, <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, should, they'll be getting worried that litigation is coming for them too. And I, I, you know, I heard from a contact of mine that that companies have been telling their shareholders for years that the law can't touch them. Well, this tells them otherwise. Yeah, exactly. It shows that investors are worried about the vast sums that they've got tied up with fossil fuel companies, and they need action to safeguard their money. The activist investor group Follow This, they brought the resolution passed at Chevron's investor meeting and a spokesperson from that group said, it's more than symbolism. The majority of shareholders say, Chevron, you are responsible for the emissions from your products. And voting for climate measures at AGMs, at big oil companies this year has increased. And yeah, as you said, you know, the writing is on the wall and, and they know it. Investors know it. I've just done a piece about how the fossil fuel era ends and oil is definitely on its way out. It'll be with us for quite a number of decades yet, but in a dwindling amount, we've hit peak oil, essentially. I've heard that before. I hope, I hope so this time. Yeah, I have I've heard that. I've heard that a few times. Well, we, we've heard it in terms of peak oil, in terms of production, but in terms of consumption now, we've hit peak oil. I guess the difference now is that investors are not just worried about what's financially best for a single business they're invested in. It's... They're worrying whether their entire investment portfolio is at risk from climate change. Uh, yeah, so it's it's really spectacular news. But it is the the whole industry has to transform and fossil fuel subsidies have to end and no more licenses to drill for oil and gas can be issued. So, you know, you have to get government action for those things. And what would be incredible is if Shell decided not to appeal. And so I called them up to ask them this and a spokesperson said, we are disappointed and fully expect to appeal. We're carefully reviewing the court's written judgment and the questions it raises. Yeah, groan. Disappointing. For the next segment, let's have an introduction from a friendly robot. <laughs> <laughs> what's, Rowan, what's it saying? 
It's saying, thank you for waiting. Here's today's coffee. Uh, take your time and, and please enjoy. Oh, that sounds nice. Now I wish I had a robot to make me a fresh cup of coffee. Well, if you go to Tokyo, you can have that. This is in a cafe in, in Tokyo where they have robot baristas making the coffee. But the twist here is that the waiters are also robots and they're controlled by people remotely. Uh, so they're avatars, basically. And the people piloting the robots are people who are confined to bed because of diseases like ALS, and that's amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or SMA, which is spinal muscular atrophy. Wow, so these people are getting a chance to interact in the outside world through their avatars, although I'm not convinced that customer service jobs is the (laughs) most uh, relaxing way to do that. Well, no, but if you can't get out at all and you can never interact with people, it's actually really an amazing thing. And these people are are able to embody the the avatar and experience the outside world, sometimes for the first time in, in years. So it's a really, this is a counterpoint to the lethal weapon robots we spoke about earlier. Uh, yeah, the cafe's in Nihonbashi in Tokyo, and it's set up by this guy called Kentaro Yoshifuji. And when he was a kid, he was ill for long periods and had to spend years at home and couldn't go to school and was really lonely. And he said he wants to work to, so this influence, his, his background illness influenced him, his life now. And he wants to work to eliminate loneliness. And that's why he's setting up the robot cafe. Yeah, I think that's such a lovely idea. So how does it actually work? Well, yeah, there's not really any new tech here. It's, it's the kind of thing we've had for a while, like the remote, remotely inhabiting a robot. Um, it's just a really nice way of, of, of using this now. The human operators dial in from their beds and they do their shift in the cafe, like a, normally a one-hour shift. And, you know, yeah, it builds on ideas of extending the self into robot operation that people have reported in the military use of robots and in gaming. You know, people use gaming avatars as an extension of self in digital spaces. So this really does seem like a really positive and therapeutic experience for the avatar operators. Next up, our feature editor, Anna Deming, has been talking to Eleanor Cleghorn about her new book, On Well Women, A Journey Through Medicine and Myth in a Man-Made World. This is an amazing look at the story of the female body and how it was and still is viewed by doctors from ancient Greece onwards, and basically tracing the historic origins of the gender pain gap, which is basically the bias against women and the underestimation of women's pain. Here's Anna. A recurring theme throughout the book seems to be a bit of an obsession through the ages with women's reproductive biology as the cause and solution at times (laughs) to all medical calamities. I wondered if to start off with, you could talk us a little bit about how that idea arose and became so entrenched as it it does seem to be a a really common theme through the book. I think that's absolutely true that um, reproductive organs have been Uh, The organs in the female body were sort of both healing the cure for disease and the cause of disease has pivoted. And I think that this was entrenched since probably since the beginnings of our Western modern medicine with the Hippocratic authors of the Hippocratic corpus of the first and earliest tracts on women's care, the care and healing of the female body. And there was this real sense, I think, that because women or the female body was understood as a reproductive body, that it made sense in that context that their diseases and illnesses would be understood sort of through the lens of their reproductive capacity. 
And I think that as the centuries um, unfolded and as medicine progressed, there was such a close affiliation between social ideas about who women were and what they should do and how they should live and how their bodies worked, that this idea of their reproductive organs being almost the sort of centre of their bodies in both health and sickness really persisted. And there was a real sense, I think, that pregnancy, especially in the ancient Greek and um, early modern medical histories, that pregnancy was both the cause of illness and its ultimate cure. So there are many cases in which the womb or uterus is somehow seen to be disorderly if it isn't performing a physiological duty that's associated with bearing children. It seems fair to say that, because obviously biology is quite complicated and there have been erroneous hypotheses about all sorts of health conditions through the ages, but these erroneous hypotheses on women's health seem to have been a little slower to debunk. There's been a lot of favour and preference for this emphasis on reproductive health. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the social convenience of that. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. I think that throughout the ages, with medicine being so as much a social mechanism, as it were, the art and science of healing, often social ideas about women and women's place in society were both reflected in medical ideas about women's bodies and also enforced by medicine too. And I think there's a real sense in which the idea of biological ideas about women's limitations, so women being primarily reproductive and therefore unsuited to professions outside of the hearth and home, maybe unsuited to thought and action, that ideas about how their bodies and minds work or the limitations of their bodies and minds have been enforced over the centuries by medicine as a way of sort of keeping women in the domestic role as mothers, wives, and um, sort of helpmates to their husbands. And I guess it helps to explain how the struggle for women to reclaim some sort of anatomical autonomy, I suppose, from the medical establishment seems to have been quite entwined with civil rights movements in general, like the movements of the suffragettes, but also the black emancipation activists seem to be working with people who were pushing for women to get more rights over their bodies and so on. Perhaps you could talk to us a little bit about the relationships between these movements. I think the suffragist movements um, of the 19th and early 20th century are fascinating in this respect because the force of medical opinion against a movement like women's suffrage was really strong and Physicians or doctors were some of the most ardent anti-suffrage campaigners. And there was an awful lot of literature published around the time about how suffrage and the campaign for suffrage wasn't just something that women shouldn't be doing because it was, you know, stepping outside their sort of socially ordained limited roles. But also that suffrage in and of itself was almost a disease. Like there are lots of references, um, especially in the sort of late 19th and very early 20th century about suffrage, suffragism being in itself a form of hysteria. So people who are men, anti-suffragists, not just men, but also women, people who are against suffrage did tend to co-opt medical language or biological language into anti-suffragist literature. 
So I, that also brings us on to another painful prejudice that um, some women have shared with other ethnic minorities and so on, is how seriously physicians respond to their reports of pain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that in the last 20 years, especially, we've been becoming more and more aware of this question of the gender pain gap, whereby women's uh, chronic pain conditions tend to not be taken as seriously as men's when they report chronic pain in uh, to health professionals and in healthcare settings. But of course, the gender pain gap, as it's been called, is not a democratic and it's an intersectional gap, depending on who you are. And there is a real sense that I think we're beginning to understand that if you are a black woman, if you're from an ethnically diverse background, that the prejudice and discrimination that you encounter is more, is you are likely to encounter more dismissal and more serious invalidation because of very entrenched prejudices about our capacities to feel sensation, to feel pain, and associated with suffering that are quite often unconscious we hope, but they're deeply entrenched and have been since middle of the 19th century and probably earlier. I think that one of the most shocking examples of this is from the early mid 19th century with some of the foundational beginnings of gynaecology in America, where James Marion Sims, who's known or was known for a long time as the father of American gynaecology, developed procedures that are still very lionized in the canon of medical history as being life-saving for women's bodies, actually developed these procedures by um, experimenting on and operating on young enslaved women, and always without anaesthetic. And this was partly, I mean, it's a horrific abuse of women's bodies. It's a horrific colonisation of of women's bodies. But it's also stemmed and was wrapped up in this awful idea that uh, black women are somehow less sensible to pain. Um, An idea that sort of came about earlier as, I think, a way to justify abuses such as chattel slavery. But the questions of civility were really written into ideas about how women felt pain. So the idea that the most civil, in inverted commas, women was the white upper class women. And she felt the most pain because her nerves were the most delicate and her sensibilities the most refined. And there was a sort of order, a sort of spectrum of how much pain one felt depending on one's perceived civility. Thanks, Anna. Thanks, Eleanor. That was our feature editor, Anna Deming, talking to Eleanor Cleghorn about her new book, Unwell Women. And that's all for this week. Thanks to our guest, Graham Lawton, and thanks to you for listening. Yes, thanks, everyone. Before you go, do check out our one-day virtual event on the future of healthcare. Yeah, this is an all-day mini-festival on Saturday 26th of June with three stages and loads of talks from artificial intelligence to genomics and regenerative medicine. Uh, it's going to be amazing and there's loads more information at newscientist.com slash future healthcare, all in one word, future healthcare. Uh, that's it. Thank you. See you next week. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by Ollie Guillou Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 